Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week we share stories from athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you? Hello. I was just saying to you how Jackie Wong at Rocker Skating has been posting a lot of skating programs from the 80s and 90s. And I am so happy. <laughs> I noticed that. Jackie, you're making me really nostalgic for the old scoring system. <laughs> the days where they didn't do jumps with their arms over their head. And the just the different ways they did crossovers. Crossovers were different back in the day. I don't know why. I'm not a good enough skater to understand it. We're going to have to talk to Jackie again. I will now start watching these videos because now I'm curious to see what, what the difference is. But I do wonder if it has something to do with the different skate blades because skate blades are Probably. also very different these days too. So put it on the list. Speaking of back in the day. Back in the day, there was an Olympics at Montreal in 1976 and we are reading a book set there. It is Inaugural Ballers by Andrew Marinus. Book Club Claire is going to be on the show to talk about it, but we are also having a special Q&A with Andrew on Monday evening, March 27th at 9 p.m. Eastern. This is free, but we need you to sign up in order to send you the link to access it please email flamealivepod at gmail.com or slide into our DMs and let us know you would like to come and we will get you that information. We need to know by March 20th if you will be making it. So please let us know. We're excited. This book is, it's good. Spoiler alert. We really like it. <laughs> you know who else we really like? Today we are talking with Jeff Whiteman, athletics coach and commentator. He himself was a runner who placed eighth in the marathon at the 1990 Commonwealth Games, and he now coaches middle distance runners, including his son Jake, who competes in the 1500 meter. The Whitemans were both at Tokyo. Jake ran and Jeff worked as an in-house announcer, uh, which is his other role among his many announcing events. Jeff was also a stadium announcer at London 2012 and the 2022 Athletics World Championships, where he called the 1500 meter final that his son won. So Olympism runs deep in this family. Jeff's wife and his sister-in-law both competed at Seoul 1988. We talked with Jeff about the strategy behind the 1500 meter and also how he approaches announcing. Take a listen. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. And one would think that running laps around a track in a 1,500-meter race would not have strategy to it, but it does. Tell us, when you approach a 1,500 race as a coach, what are you looking at in terms of building a strategy? Well, it, it's changed. And the point at which it changed was the Rio Olympic Games, because in the 1,500-meter final there, uh, Matt Centrovitz of USA won in 3 minutes 50 with a 50-second last lap. And that was... That was more or less how Olympic Games have, at any championships have been run for 100 years up until then. Slow, 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 quick. And then by the time we got to London 2017, and, and certainly in the five, six years since then, those athletes that 
can run a sustained almost world record pace on their own have decided they're not going to let races be run like that so the result is that in in Eugene in Tokyo and in Doha at the world championships in 2019 athletes like Timothy Cherrier and Jakob Ingebrigtsen have set out relatively early barely a lap into the race at world record speed on their own and sustained that so it's no longer good enough to be able to sit back relax cover the moves and then kick at the end you've got to actually commit to a very very fast race not far outside world record pace for almost the whole of the three and a half minutes how do you do that well and the other the other finesse is that that's the third round in four days and the heats and semi-finals are being run a little bit like that as well so when Seb Coe won in 84 I, I asked him about this the other week he ran probably I think uh, 339 first round a 337 second round semi-final and then 334 in the final for an Olympic record now all of those times start about three seconds quicker. So the reality is in the Diamond League circuit beforehand, you've got to get used to running at 3.30 pace or quicker. You've got to have good 800-metre speed by the time we get to that point in the season. But you've also got to have a bit of over-distance endurance, 3,000-metre, 5,000-metre strength to be able to get through the rounds. So Jake, was, Jake, who I coached, my son, world champion, was really disappointed in Tokyo when he got dropped off the pace in the Olympic final. Uh, that was running 3.30, finished 10th. And we spent most of last winter just going over distance, running further, quicker, racing 3,000 metres indoors. And the result of that was he came back stronger and better able to cope with three rounds as intense as that. So what makes somebody good at a middle distance versus a 200 or versus a much longer distance? I think it's temperament. A lot of it's temperament. So um, three minutes of action is bite size, but it's hard. So you have got to have the ability to be able to suffer for a prolonged period. But you've also got to have pretty decent closing speed. So you still have to be able to run the last 400 meters in 50 to 52 seconds off a reasonable pace if you need to. So it's quite an intriguing blend of strength and speed. And, and it always has been. And that's one of the reasons it's the Blue Ribbon event. It started as the mile, four laps in four minutes. We've always had a fascination with that. And the 1,500 metres at most games has been one of the Blue Ribbon events because every nation does it. You don't need anything technical. So we have every continent represented in the preliminary rounds. And it, it's a worthy champion that comes through that. Yeah, there aren't too many events where you see Kenya, Norway and Great Britain being outstanding in the same event. Exactly. And you can add into that Australia, New Zealand, who've got some good current athletes. It, it's a vintage time for 1500 meter running and pretty much every continent is in there. If you extend it to the women's event, the Japanese have got um, uh, an Olympic finalist from Tokyo as well. So it's properly global. Everybody sort of knows from high school what they could do for a mile or what they could do for 1500 meters because they did it in PE or games at school. So it's a very relatable event, a very simple event. And for that reason, the qualifying standard, even to get to the Games, has gone quicker and quicker over the last five, ten years. How fast do you think it can get? The shoes have made a big difference. So I think uh, there was a revelation recently that in the States, the body that counts sub-400 milers has stopped. And we had a situation last weekend in the States where I think it was 12 athletes in one meeting went under four minutes for the mile in different races at the same indoor event. And it used to be quite an exclusive club. It no longer is. I think the 1,500-metre world record is on borrowed time. I think 3.26 to El Garouge goes back to 1998. I think in the right circumstances in the Diamond League, 
there are five or six athletes who could probably run quicker than that. But it could be at the expense of a medal in a championship. So you've got to decide that when those records were set, there used to be off years in championships where there was no Olympics, World, Europeans or Commonwealth. Now every year has a championship. So if you do decide to go to Monaco and have a world record attempt, it could be at the expense of a medal the following month in a World or Olympic Games. What about the shoes has changed to make the times really drop? Well, there's been a lot of investment. Things kind of stood still for about 20 years. We had air and gel and, and honeycomb cushioning. And then suddenly the carbon fiber plate got reimagined in conjunction with some real uh, high-tech memory foam. And that has most obviously shown itself in marathon running, where uh, runners have come down to two hours, two minutes, when that perhaps would have been two hours, seven minutes 20 years ago. And it's had an effect on all distance races. And also, actually, it was distance running spikes that Toby Amusen was wearing in the sprint hurdles when she broke the world record last summer. So there is a cushioning, there's a spring, there's a protection to the calves and heels that is afforded by that technology. I don't know what it's worth empirically, but certainly you would think in 1,500 metres, maybe a couple of seconds compared to the shoes that were being worn in Sydney 2000. It's, it's moved on a lot in the last five years, and I think will continue to. For the 1500, are they wearing spikes because they're on the track or are they wearing road shoes? Yeah, you're not allowed to wear road shoes on the track. So there's two different regulations. It's a stack height of 40 millimeters, four centimeters on the roads, which is pretty high. And I don't know what it is on the track. I would guess it's 10 or 15 millimeters, something like that. So yes, they're spikes, but they do have a thicker cushion. The trend was in the 80s, 90s to have really thin spikes, you know, as close to barefoot as you could get. And now that technology is minimal, but beneficial, and it's all in the uh, heel and the midfoot. Spike plate is still as it ever was. Why aren't you allowed to wear road shoes on on the track? Why do you Be- have to wear Because they're too, they're too cushiony, too springy, too bouncy. So on the road, it's 40 millimeters. You, you see it sometimes in sort of unregulated races, like high school races. Kids do come onto the track with road shoes, super shoes, but it wouldn't be allowed in any meeting of any standard because they would just be too beneficial, especially over something like 5,000, 10,000 metres, not not so much at 1,500 metres, very, very deep cushioning. Sorry, I just got the mental image of the runners kind of bouncing. <laughs> they look like that. The they do the look like that. They're like whoopee wellies. <laughs> they're, they're like, uh, yeah, like something out of um, 1970s disco. So, okay, strategy, because, yeah. you know, 1500, I know you've said is your favorite. Yeah. You love calling it. You love branding it. You love coaching it. Lots of different styles, running from the front, running from the back. So how does a runner come up with what works for, in your case, him, for Jake? Well, well, the first thing should be to try and run as close to 1500 meters as you can. We had some analysis done on Jake's races in 2017, 2018, and he was running quite wide in races to position himself and overtake. And the net effect of that was he was running up to 1,540 metres. Well, if you think 40 metres is another two, three, four, five seconds of running. So there are athletes who absolutely hug the rail. And the danger of that is you rely on other people for your fortunes over the last lap. You can get boxed in, you can miss the brakes, you can fail to respond at a key time in the race, even though you're running the shortest distance. So the balance is somewhere between the two. It's probably overtaking in the straights, but tucking in on the bends because it's the bends where you can run the extra distance. And I like to think you shouldn't allow yourself to drop too much outside the top three. 
especially the way races are run at a high level now, because if you drift too far back, two seconds can be terminal. If you're two seconds behind with 600 metres to go, you may never get that back. So you have to cover the moves, but without expending too much energy in a sudden surge, but without sitting too far back and without running too far. So if you can balance all of those things, and, and most people are going after a similar position around third, you've cracked it. But it, you've got to think on your feet. There's a lot happening. There are people making surges. There are people making bogus surges where they've just gone carried away and probably won't come back. But somewhere in there, you've got to make half a dozen judgment calls in the space of three minutes. So Jake's race in world championships, I was just actually rewatching it right before we got on, seemed like his perfect race. It looked so easy for him. So what good decisions was he making along the way? Well, he was taking risks. And, and the, the chat we had the day before was, you've never had a medal in, in a global championship, three attempts, four attempts. He could have probably played the percentages and run for a bronze. He could have sat back in fifth, sixth or seventh place and relied on his speed to come through and get a bronze. But he was in really good shape. The opportunity to take a risk, try and get gold, was all about covering every move. So if somebody made a surge and there were a couple, cover them and then try and get to the bell within touching distance of the leader's shoulder. And that's what he did. And then he probably went a little bit quick, but it's that whole thing about not overtaking on the bends, getting in front on the bend and, you know, letting the adrenaline take over. And in the end, he only won it by a fraction of a second, but he did enough off a quick pace for that to work. So the strategy in a nutshell was take risks, cover all the brakes, rely on your speed at the end, but position well. You kept your cool announcing that race. How'd you do it? Well, it's not a novelty for me to be announcing Jake's races. I started doing it when he was in his teens at school because my wife was his PE teacher. So he used to get roped in for school sports days. And as he's come through national championships, Commonwealth, European World Olympic, I've been lucky enough to be announcing and sometimes we get a choice of the events we want to do. So in London 2012, I chose both 1500 meter races, which were terrible. And my colleague, Gary Hill, got both 800 meter races and Rudisha won the 800 in one of the great races of all time. But I still keep picking 1500 meters. And now that Jake's a part of it, I know I have to stay impartial because otherwise I'll get dropped from doing it in the future. So I'm not just there for him. I'm there for a everybody in the race and everybody in the crowd. So, and also you're concentrating hard on who's, who's doing what of keeping an eye on the clock in Eugene as well, because the British record was close in the end. So there's lots of things going on. The heart's racing, but you just still try and keep, keep the mouth in neutral. I don't know how to do that. So that's not, that's definitely not a job for me. (laughs) When you're stuck in the pack, how does the jostling work? Are there rules against elbowing somebody too much? Or how do you use it to your advantage to get out of a tight situation? Well, the athletes that race at the highest level in 1,500 metres don't often come out complaining of things physical, elbows or nudges or pushes. It happens a little bit, uh, less than it used to, because there's cameras everywhere. There's super slow-mo. Anybody, I remember back to Rio in particular, there were a lot of disqualifications for impeding people like that. The thing that actually happens most often Almost every race is spiking, spiking of the shins, treading on the feet. That happens a lot, men's and women's races. And that's because of the close proximity. So it it doesn't tend to take place in the upper body now. You don't get elbows and shoulders, but you do get shins and knees and spike plates in contact. But I think there's just so much scrutiny on contact that it's less of an issue. You, You do get people that panic when they've 
hug the rail and have to get out in a in a hurry, just sort of trying to ease their way through and making contact with people as they try and find a gap with their arms. But it's it's not that common. It's become less of a feature over the last three or four years. What are the qualities that make somebody good for middle distance versus a marathon or a sprint? Sprinting speed. So there's a whole different running action. We spend a lot of time, like three sessions a week, on speed of contact off the ground, the same as sprinters. So uh, the result of that is Jake's terrible at cross country because everything that he does is drilled to be quick back off the ground. Whereas marathon runners can be heel strikers and quite a long period of contact on the ground protected by those super shoes. But most 1500 meter runners could still run a pretty decent four by 400 meter leg you know, 47, 48 seconds off a rolling start if they had to. So you kind of know which direction your career is going in by the time you're in your teens. You know, if you if you haven't got that leg turnover, you will drift through the distances to the road and marathon. If you can still change pace well on the track, then the 1500 metres has something to offer you. But you, you know to look at a runner, whether they've got that sort of spring and bounce and contact off the ground. I noticed that middle distance tends to be older. And what is it about middle distance and and experience that works so well together? There's definitely an apprenticeship that you have to serve. You can be a prodigy as Jakob was, but that's not common. Jake went into the 2017 World Championships with one of the fastest times in the world this year, a winner in the Diamond League in Oslo, and he didn't make the final. He's made every final since, but that was a harsh learning curve about most people in the qualifying rounds of 1500 are quite invisible until about 300 meters to go. So they tuck in, they don't do anything dramatic, they cover the moves gradually, and then with 300 meters to go, they suddenly appear in a qualifying position. Now, if you watch the really experienced competitors, that happens in heat, semi final, and if they can get away with it in the final as well. So it's energy conservation, it's positioning, it's nothing too extravagant, it's no sudden burst. Jake won his semi-final at the Tokyo Olympics, and that that meant that the race, the final, a couple of days later, was probably a race too far. So it's not doing anything that that gets the emotions, the adrenaline, or the energy conservation out of sync. And sometimes you've got to run a couple of championships at that level to understand how to do that. So there is still an apprenticeship to be served, I think, and experience to be gained. You you're not in lanes. You've got to make calls about your positioning and you're running against people. In Tokyo, there was only, I think, less than two-tenths of a second separating all 12 finalists coming through from the semifinals. They were all 336 point something. So incredibly close. But the big names do come through because they just know how to finesse that last lap. When we're watching a 1500, And obviously, you know the fastest person wins, but how do you watch it to get some of the nuances? What should we be watching for? The fastest person doesn't always win. That's still the fascination with it. I mean, mean, Jake wasn't the fastest in, in Eugene. He just ran closer to his perfect race in the final. And it is playing to your strength. So if you're not the fastest in the field and Inga Britson and Chariot wouldn't win if it was an 800 meters, but they would win if it was a 5,000 meters. So they will go early. You can predict that. You can say that already about Paris and about Budapest at the World Championships this summer. Those guys won't leave it till the last lap. It will be fast from 60 seconds into the race. Other athletes who've got the quick 400 metre times will be hoping it isn't like that. They'll be hoping it's more of a central race where they can 
make their speed count. But so it's fascinating, really. You've got people that can't kick that will be trying to draw the sting out of those that can, and people who can kick desperately trying to hang on. And somewhere in the two, the person with the best combination of those two things will win. But they won't necessarily be the fastest runner, but they'll be the smartest tactician and the one that got it right on the day. There was an interview that you did that you mentioned that Jake also has a sprints coach. Yes. For his middle distance. So how does that work in terms of prepping for the 1500? It's Laura Turner Alain. She was um, an Olympic sprinter, relay medalist in Commonwealth Games at four by 100 meters. She's one of our foremost sprint coaches and multi-event coaches in the UK. We've worked with different people since Jake was an undergraduate, but most recently with Laura for about six or seven years. And it involves Thursday afternoon sprints and drills and Monday afternoon drills. So they spend out of 12 sessions a week, they spend two specifically on sprinting as often as we can with her watching over it at Brunel University, but often on their own or with just me keeping an eye on that. And it's mostly about form and those things that I was saying about ground contact and rigid ankles and all of those things that sprinters do that middle distance runners tend not to. Can you always have a kick and that's something that you just maybe in a specific race you don't have the energy for? Or is that just like innately within your capabilities as a runner? Everybody can kick off a slow pace. So if it's slow enough, like it was in Rio, you'll have the whole field in in two seconds and it will be like a 400 meters. The challenge is to be able to kick when you've got lactic acid up to your eyelashes and you're really struggling to hold on to almost a world record pace in your third race in four days in hot, humid, tense conditions. That's where it's more tricky to be able to be certain of your kick because everything is against that and and half the field are trying not to leave it to a sprint finish, which is the big sort of transformation in 1500 metres. So everybody has a kick in a slow race. Not everybody has a kick and it's relative if it's being run at 3.30 pace. What is recovery like? What do they have to do to prepare during races? So if you've got... In between races. Yeah. If you have three races in four days, and it will be slightly more than that in Budapest and Paris, recovery starts as soon as the athletes cross the line. So it will be carbohydrates, physiotherapy, massage, flush out. And then quite often, and it's not as in vogue as it used to be, but those cryogenic ice machines where you go into minus 30 degrees... We tend not to use those year round because it inhibits the body's own healing and flushing mechanism. But in a championship where you might be racing on a Tuesday night and you've got a semi-final on a Wednesday afternoon, five or 10 minutes in that can help. And then part of the challenge is trying to get to sleep because often the athletes will have taken caffeine, whether it's in coffee or tablet form to be pepped up for the race and that will stay with them. So if they raced at nine or 10 o'clock, they may not be able to get to sleep until 2 a.m. So then it's optimizing when you get up the next day, whether you have a little jog and and going into the same countdown procedure again. So it's a good question because it's not easy to recover twice in four days, but there is a protocol for it. That's what some of the support staff are there to help facilitate. But everybody's different on that, especially around sleep, because sleep in an athlete village where you might be sharing a room with somebody that's getting up early the next day where there might be extraneous noise, eye patches, earplugs, all of those things, and maybe extended naps in the afternoon, even if you're racing in the evening. It's, that's all part of recovery. 
how long of a training plan do you have? So is it mapped out for a season or multiple years, you know, coming into something like either Tokyo or going as we're looking at Paris? I will have a pretty good idea what Jake's year looks like starting in September. So he takes a break for two or three weeks. Then it's quite high mileage and a trip to Flagstaff before Christmas, South Africa, and then a mini indoor season in the first three months of the new year, then back to Flagstaff in May and then start racing May into June, looking for the big race to be the eighth one in a series of perhaps 12 or 15 races in the summer. So that's the rhythm of the year. I know roughly what it looks like. I know roughly what the mileage and the long runs look like within that, but it it never goes smoothly. Last year he had COVID, this year, right now he's in a boot, having turned his ankle in South Africa in January, so that will extend his winter by a week or two. So so the theory and the practice are, are quite different. I know what a theoretical year looks like. We've yet to completely deliver it in practice. Do you involve weights in training? Yes, a lot. I would say it's something that Jake does more than most of his contemporaries. So he's done it since he was an undergraduate, in fact, almost since he was at school. I mean, it's a guy called Andy Kay, who is an excellent S&C coach, now getting a reputation for himself. And we do S&C on a Tuesday afternoon and a Saturday afternoon, and also a session called Prehab, which is a Wednesday afternoon, and that's usually core stretching and strengthening. And we also do yoga on a Monday night as well. But Jake, I would say, was quite a weedy kid, quite skinny into his late teens, early 20s. And the transformation in him with the sinewy strength that he now has and the bounce that he has in his stride is is thanks to the work of Andy Kay and the fact that Jake's spent two sessions of an hour and a half every week over the last seven or eight years to achieve that. So what is a training? What's a training day like? How many hours a day is he training? It's probably two or three sessions a day and they could be an hour and a half each. So a long run or a, or a track workout still involves quite a long warm up and a warm down. These gym sessions can stretch to an hour and three quarters to two hours. So one way and another, between sort of getting up, getting your hydration and your nutrition right, training for the first time, then recovering, maybe napping, eating again, then training for a second time, that's the day gone really. So although the actual training is only one to two and a half hours, the preparation and the scheduling of it is a full-time thing. I'm curious as to the balance of relationship between dad and coach and how that works. I mean, those are two very fraught relationships that then are competing with each other. Yeah, it's been in quite sharp focus the last year because as he gets older, he does know better than me what it feels like to line up for those races, to input on his training, and especially his races. He doesn't like cross-country. I'm still a fan, so we, we have we're even having a to and froing about the two races that he might do before Easter as part of his comeback, assuming it all goes to plan. And if it was one of my other athletes and I coach four, they would probably be quite deferential in expressing an opinion. It would be a WhatsApp message, a phone call with him because he's my son. He just tells me blunt to my face quite rudely sometimes. And I'll be quite rude back. So that's families for you. And it, it does, um, we resolve it eventually. My wife gets drawn in sometimes, but Usually, I would say most of the time it's harmonious, but when it's blunt, when it's fractious, it's really fractious. It's shouty, it's sulking for days, it's that kind of thing that you'd expect. It's like teaching a member of your family to drive. You 
it's not going to go smoothly, is it? You're going to have raised voices. You're going to have tantrums. It's just families. Has it gotten easier as he's gotten older or more complicated? That's a good question. I, I think I think it's okay. I think on my behalf, there's an acknowledgement that he'll be a coach himself one day. He's nearly 30, well, he's nearly 29. He has a lot of experience, which I don't have. So it has to be in the nature of a dialogue around coaching. So I often, I post training on a software program on a Sunday, but it's consultative. If he says, no, I, can't, I don't want to do that, or that, that's just not going to work, then I take it down and I change it. In the past, I would probably have been a bit more dictatorial about that. Now, he kind of knows he's world champion. He knows what it takes. And I have to respect his input on that journey all 52 weeks. Okay, so this is a personal question, and please feel free not to answer it. I'm curious about the financial aspect when your father is your coach, and do you pay him a salary? Like, how does that work on the financial side? I don't take any money directly off my athletes because I think that would change the relationship. I, I get money from New Balance and UK Athletics. A lot of that is in kind. So it's support for flights and training camps and car hire and accommodation and all that kind of thing. So there's nothing that flows between Jake or any of my other athletes and me. And that's always been the case. And that probably always will be the case because I think it changes the dynamic. I think I would then become his consultant or his employee. And I wouldn't necessarily feel the same about putting my foot down about something. So yeah, he's he's reasonably well remunerated. Coaches everywhere, less so, but I'm not in it for payment. I'm in it for sort of helping athletes achieve their potential. So I'm I'm happy with how things are. Is that how a lot of coaches operate? Do you know? At the highest level, there aren't many coaches making a living. Those that are are paid by colleges or shoe brands or federations or clubs. There is a precedent, especially among sprinters, where the athletes pay a monthly retainer for the coaching services. And that may be for a lead coach, a strength and conditioning coach, a nutritionist, a physio within a sort of corporate structure. I don't think there's that many distance coaches charging their athletes directly. Most of them will do it through through their shoe sponsor or through their federation. That's how coaches of distance runners most often get remunerated. I don't know. That's so interesting. How that, you know, I never, I mean, you think how, because an athlete needs, especially in, in running needs a, a fair amount of services, whether it's yeah. massage or coaching or what have you nutrition. And you kind of wonder like, how does that all get paid for? Is there that much money in the diamond league circuit that covers all of that? Yeah, and, and, and the one that people point to is that almost all of them have a race agent or a commercial agent, a shoe deal, appearance fees and prize money and, and retainers, and the agent will get 20% of that. The coach doesn't, but they may have an arrangement that, that gets them somewhere in that direction via the agent, via the shoe company or via the federation. But it's, it, yeah, in the money go round, the coaches, the coaches are a bit left behind unless unless you're with one of the big West Coast shoe teams. There's not loads. There's a living, but it's not. You're not going to get rich. As a coach, how do you stay up on? I don't want to say the word trends, but I guess developments in how people can improve. The most common is the time spent with other coaches, whether formally or informally. So at training camps, events, warm up areas, that's the chance to talk about who's trying what, you know, and and to see other ideas in action. So we've just come back from South Africa. 
and there were most of the leading British endurance runners were there. And you're kind of living in a goldfish bowl. Everybody knows what everybody's doing training wise and socially throughout the day. But it does enable you to look at different ways of doing things. And then you supplement that with webinars, publications, books, conferences, magazines, all of those sorts of things. So there's lots of different ways of just sort of keeping abreast of ideas, ideas that, that may or may not work for you. How often do you try implementing something new? Because if you're building, if you're in a race schedule, like when do you not want to rock the boat when it comes to trying something new? Whenever I set out the first six months of training in the winter in September through to March, I always try and think of something different, whether it's dietary, sand dunes in training, use of a sports psychologist, something that we haven't done before. So, so for example, there's a new nutritionist, Nigel, at um, British Athletics, who's fantastic. And we will make use of his services in a way that we've never done before. He's got lots of ideas about lactic buffering, use of beetroot, just stuff we haven't thought about before. And I think you can introduce that on a trial and error basis without too much harm. If it's if it's wrong, if he tries dietary things that don't work, he can go back quick enough. But there's some expertise on offer there that could give a 1% advantage. And whenever that crops up, whether it's at the start of the year or mid-season, yeah, we'll try it because he's he's intelligent. He knows other athletes. He knows what he's doing. He worked with Ineos team on the Tour de France. So on every level, he's a guy that knows how endurance bodies tick. And we've got the opportunity to tap into his expertise. So try and do one new thing from September going into the new year. Sometimes opportunities just pop up mid-year. Use of a sports psychologist. I think that came in in March of one year as a result of... I think it was when Seb went to uh, Jake went to have a chat with Seb Co, and it was just something we decided to do off the back of that. And I don't get involved. I, I'm not even sure of the name of the sports psychologist that he uses, but it helps. And most importantly, it can't do any harm. So you know, it's worth trying. I'm so glad you mentioned Seb Co because I'm curious as to Team GB has a very long history of track. So I was very surprised that Jake was only the second world champion for the 1500 from yeah. from Great Britain. How how does that tradition kind of play into both your career as a coach, your career as an athlete, and then continuing with your son? Well, I, I was lucky enough to to live through that era. I, I know all three of Co, Cram and Overt as friends and training partners and colleagues, been for a run with all of them. And I remember the golden era when the nine o'clock news on the BBC was broken into to go over to a world record attempt in Zurich. You know, it was unheard of sort of coverage for athletics. But but that almost then became a millstone for the next generation because they were always compared with them. Why are we not winning at that level? The whole East African wave came in, the Moroccans, and we weren't even making finals, let alone winning medals. And I think that's been really, really hard for the generations that have followed. I think Seb and Steve and Steve Ovet have played their part in mentoring and just chatting to people about having the confidence to develop. So Seb has chatted to Jake since he was in his teens. He's been very good about giving his time, talking about the pros and cons of being coached by your father. They both went to Loughborough University. They both try and double at eight and 1500 metres. So Jake and I talk to Seb several times a year about ideas. And, and when you spend time with somebody like that, there's no fear. He never had any fear of making teams or going through rounds or injuries interrupting his year. He was always very confident 
for 10 years in a row that things would come good. And Steve Cram's much the same. So when you chat as a British athlete to someone like that, that sort of confidence and belief and assurance just, I think, rubs off over time. So Jake's first breakthrough was European juniors 10 years ago. But I think that generation have really helped the current generation to adjust to the demands of international athletics. And I think the 15, 20 years in between really suffered from the comparison and the expectation that they would keep that production line going, which was a once in a generation thing or once in a century thing, really. I'm imagining Christmas dinner at the Whiteman house. (laughs) That would be awesome. It, well, in what way? Argumentative or, or when we play games, when we play games, charades or anything, it is so, so competitive. My wife was an Olympic athlete. Jake's a twin. So he and Sam are really, really competitive. My daughter doesn't let them get away with anything. So anything competitive, my goodness. I mean, when we have girlfriends, boyfriends or in-laws new to the family, it's just embarrassing how fierce we are about the slightest little competitive situation. It's, I'm ashamed. I was also thinking, because you were talking about the nutritionist, who makes the choice on the Christmas pudding? Because there, there's a lot of input that has to happen there. Yeah. So my daughter is a vegan. My wife's pretty much vegetarian. So there are several options there. But I think Jake will get more intense about his diet over the next few years. But right now, it, it's not too strict. And Christmas isn't too strict. You know, so it's okay. Everybody has the same Christmas dinner as everybody else. But the party games, my goodness. We played Murder Mystery on New Year's Eve during lockdown, and that almost came to blows. It's just when you get too many type A people in one room. How does having a mom for an Olympian and an aunt for an Olympian help your son? Well, I I didn't go to the Olympics, and it was a big regret of mine, which still is in a way. But the fact that I've announced one and I've coached at one, I've announced at two now, has got rid of that. But I heard Jake say when he was a kid and he was he was training and he, he'd be saying to other athletes, oh, I'd like to go to the Olympics one day. And the other kid would say, yeah. And he'd say, but my mum went and my auntie went. And really, it's not that big a deal in our family because we've had two two that have been and Jake's been as well. It's just me, Martha and Sam that are the odd ones because we haven't. So I think I think that sort of made it easier in some ways for him to think, well, I can get to that level because Somewhere along the way, it might be in my genes to be an Olympian, but it was, it's certainly a very odd situation he, because my wife and her sister are identical twins as well. So that's highly unusual to have identical twin boys and then an identical twin mother. That's not hereditary. That's just a luck of the draw. But I think that whole, well, they both went to the Olympics, so I might as well, <laughs> was, was an odd one. So speaking of the Olympics... You've announced at London, correct? Yeah. And Tokyo. Yeah. Two completely different experiences. Yes. What makes a good in-house announcer in athletics? Uh, it's changed. So my style certainly wasn't in vogue up until just before 2012. I think it's communication. So our sport is quite complicated. There's an awful lot going on. And if somebody's coming for the first time, you have to kind of explain the field events and and how that all works and also when to get excited and when not you know so the distance events will build so so it's um it's explaining it's enthusing and it's just trying to position athletics along with every other sport as entertainment really that i think is is the role of the announcer in stadium 
Did you have to get them enthusiastic very much in London? London was amazing. And you spoke about the contrast with Tokyo. So in London, we had 80,000. And they weren't athletics fans necessarily. They were Olympic fans. And a lot of first-timers. And we had face paints and flags. And at one stage, the noise on Super Saturday, when Mo Farah won the 5,000 metres on the second Super Saturday, the noise that they made as he crossed the line created a sound wave that distorted the photo finish camera equipment, the film or the digital imaging inside the photo finish. They had to go to a backup image to get the the accurate timing. Tokyo, there was barely a thousand people in the stadium and they were all either teams or VIPs or security personnel. So we were the atmosphere in Tokyo. We had to create the atmosphere that was missing, but was just so conspicuous in London. How does that take a toll on you physically and mentally when you're trying to be exciting for 70,000 people who aren't there? Uh, it, it was okay in Tokyo. The, the, the load is always shared. So in any session of athletics, there will be three voices that you'll hear. And in Tokyo, it was two English and one Japanese. And, and that's usually the way. So it's the home language and English shared. So that means that if it's a session of 20 events in an evening, I'll do 10. I'll lead on 10 of them. And it may be six track and three field. So that's manageable. The voices change a bit. The tempo changes a little bit. DJs have made a huge difference to the experience in the stadium. Not all of the purists like music, but I think our sport works well with music. We've now moved on to lasers and lighting effects and things of that kind. And it's far more razzmatazz than it used to be. So I enjoy it. It's nine or 10 or 12 days of competition. Nine is usually the maximum. That that can be hard. I've done solo days of nine hours on day nine. That that takes a physical toll. But you kind of get through it. You're, you're pretty whacked at the end of it. But it's a big adrenaline rush because we're all athletics fans. So we all enjoy it as much as feel like we're working as well. I was going to ask about your own training for that. You know, are there Thank things you. that you that you prep? Do you have a favorite cough drop? Do you have a favorite beverage in your thermos? How do you get through the days? So I do practice. I, I went to a voice coach after London 2017 on that day nine of nine hours and my voice was going. I went to see a voice coach and I have exercises that I do every other day uh, that help strengthen. I've got, you have to stay well hydrated. So I always have water plus and then a, a gradation of just pastels, which are non-medicated, then strepsils, and then vocal zone. And vocal zone is the one that gets some of these singers through their Las Vegas residencies, but it has an anesthetic effect. So only one of those per session maximum. So that's the degrees of that. And I also have a steamer that I inhale between sessions as well, because that keeps the vocal cords lubricated. So I've got a, a regime. Yeah, we learned our lesson on going too many days with bad hydration. It's the key. It's the key to getting through the, the long sessions. But it, it, if you're drinking water, no, no. as you have to, it's got to go somewhere. So you've got to be prepared to make a run for it every hour or so as well. That's the other <laughs> thing to be factored in. And, and I've, had, I've had situations I announced in a, a Diamond League in New York, and I did seven and a half hours solo, and the toilet was three fours down via a lift so I had to just stay put even the national anthem while that was playing I couldn't 
leave. So seven and a half hours, that's, that's hard, that's stamina. <laughs> Do you have a race where you said to yourself, I, that was really good in the call I did? I think the best I've ever done was that Super Saturday, the last Super Saturday of London 2012. I had to do the first two or three hours on my own because Gary Hill was at the race walk that was finishing in the mall. And then he joined me for the last three hours or whatever it was. And I think that's probably the best I've done so far. I can't think of anything, any major errors or things that I missed, but you're always trying to improve. You know, probably if I listened to it back, I would think "Mm, that was a bit meh. I still think uh, 11 years on, I still think that was probably my best session of track and field. So it must have been okay. But but it's not my opinion that counts. It's the producer and it's the people watching in the stadium. So, you know, in a way, it doesn't matter what I think of our output. It's whether people enjoyed that session of athletics. And if you get hired again, you know. Exactly. You're yeah. If you get if you get asked <laughs> back, you, you're, you're doing enough. You're doing enough. Yeah. What is the process for you to get the job as an Olympic announcer? I was very, very lucky. And I, I can tell this story without mentioning names, but I'd been announcing since the 80s at my club and London Marathon since 91. And we got to 2006, seven when the London Olympics had been, had been awarded. And I was, I would so love, I would love more than anything in my life to be an announcer at London 2012. But there was really no chance because I was four or five seats away. For me to get it, it would have needed somebody to turn it down, uh, somebody to die, and somebody to suffer ill health. And all three of those things happened. All three of those things happened, unbelievably. And I and I just, they decided they needed an English voice. It couldn't be all Americans. So I got the call. And then even more unbelievably, there was a, an opinion piece in one of our tabloids, the Daily Mail, saying, anger as an American voice set to ring out over the main Olympic stadium. And off the back of that, which appeared like just a few days before the Games, I was given all the prime events, the men's hundred, and my choice of everything. So when I look back on it, I still can't believe it. You know, I was just in the right place at the right time. I'd been brought back in to Diamond Leagues. I'd done a World Youth Championship the year or two before, but it was lucky. And I still, I still thank my lucky stars. How did it work then for Tokyo? Tokyo, I'd been quite established. I did the previous it's now the call is with world athletics so world athletics have a roster of announcers that they use everybody gets given a chance because across the year we have a world cross country this weekend in australia there's a world indoors every other year there's um, world cup and world championships and and i've been lucky enough to do the last five world championships so 17 19 was four and and 23 this year and I don't know about Olympics. I don't know about Paris. I'd love to do it. I'd love to still be in the frame for Los Angeles. And I I have done a couple of Paralympic Games as well, including Tokyo. But often these things are taste and giving other people a chance. There's an increasing need for female voices uh, within it, for more diversity within announcing. And I'm an older white guy, so I'm not always going to be first choice. But, you know, I'm just grateful when I when I do get the chance. We Americans love the English accent, so we're always, I'm, I have no, no surprise that you were in Eugene. I'm like, of course, because somehow when someone with an English accent tells us something, we believe them more. <laughs> well, we are, we're often villains, aren't we, in Bond or other films. The English accent is the cad as well. I think it plays well <laughs> West Coast, 
uh, more than East Coast sometimes, mm-hmm. or is it the other way around? I can't, I can't remember. But yeah, but you can still go to places where you say something and you think you're pronouncing it exactly right, and people go, "What? Sorry." It's like it takes a while for people to get with it. You're a marathoner. How much do you still run these days? I cover and write down 100 miles a month, so 25 miles a week, but increasingly some of that's walking. So my target is to run three five-milers each week and two of something else. So I still run, and my knees are still fine thanks to turmeric, and hips and back are still okay. So I'd like to reach 100,000 lifetime miles. I'm on about 74,000 at the moment. So it'll be a race between that and dying, I should think, you know, because it will... If it happens, it'll be when I'm 80. So I'm, I might be deceased at 90,000 miles. Well, Jill needs a training plan because we're getting her ready for the 10K in Paris. <laughs> oh, oh, the mass participation one. Yeah, good luck. There's there's lots of schedules and they're <laughs> yeah, good all good. Luck getting in. <laughs> <laughs> no, start, start gradually, but there's lots of online schedules for 10K. It'll be a nice distance to do, a great place to do it as well. So you're English, your wife is Welsh, your son runs from Scotland. Yes. Who are we sending to Northern Ireland? It, it That's well picked up on. There was a joke one time that our son was a steeplechaser and he liked Guinness and he could run for Ireland, but or Northern Ireland as it would be in the Commonwealth. But no, it's slightly unusual. Susan and Jake's qualifications are by residence. So uh, Susan was an undergraduate and a postgraduate in Wales. So that qualified for her for Wales. And Jake lived 10 years in Scotland and that was enough and he is does regard himself as Scottish and and Susan will cheer for Wales at rugby but it is slightly unusual within one family to have three nationalities but that's it now we can't (laughs) we can't get an Irish man or woman out of it well I say that I mean if one of them moves marry or or if they move there if they move there for six years yeah why not yeah it would be funny (laughs) is there anything else we've not talked about that we should know when we're watching the 1500? No, I think it's, it is a golden era for 1500. You pointed out how many different nationalities are in the mix there, but the times that they're running now, and it will take a world record from somebody for people to realise that this is probably one of the all-time great eras at 1500 metres, but it is, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be involved in it, but it makes it really hard to make teams and finals and podiums. It's, it's classic at the moment. Excellent. Well, no, I'm way more excited to to watch it in Paris. Definitely. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you so much, Jeff. You can follow Jeff on Insta at Jeff Whiteman. And on Twitter, he is Whiteman Jeff. Uh, That sound means it is time for our history moment. All year long, we are looking at the Seoul 1988 games as it is the 35th anniversary of those games it is your turn for a story allison what do you have i have parents and children so nice jeff and jake and the whiteman family have a long history they are not the only ones this is just parents and children i didn't even get into siblings spouses cousins in-laws so this is going to be either the parent or the child competed in 88 and then have some connections. So we've already talked about Reiner Klimka and his daughter Ingrid, who have a long history of dressage, but dressage in Germany is a family affair. And Catherine Linsenhoff won gold in Seoul, but was only half as successful as her mother, Lisselot, who won gold in 68 and 72. 
Josef Neckermann won four medals at four different Olympics competing for Germany. His daughter, Eva Maria Procht, competed for Canada at Seoul and won the team bronze. Wow. Yeah, I want to know the story there. We got more Germans. Reinhold Baer competed in fencing in Munich and Montreal, and his son, Matthias, and daughter-in-law, Zita Eva Fuchenhauser, both won multiple medals in 1988 at Seoul. Andreas Keller represented West Germany in field hockey in Seoul. His grandfather, father, wife, daughter, and son all played field hockey for various incarnations of Germany. Whoa. There has to we be got more field family. Or I, they have a whole I, family museum. Like, can you imagine? All field hockey. Watch out for the sticks at that family dinner. <laughs> we got more field hockey from the Netherlands. Hedy Kruitz played in 1988, just as his father, Ropi, had played in 48 and 52. Yevgeny Grishin competed in water polo for the Soviet Union in 88. His mother, Valentina Rostovrova, competed in fencing at three Olympics. And his father, Boris Grishin, was a water polo player as well. There were cousins and extended family in that group. But like I said, parents and children only. We got more water polo families, this time from Italy. Marco Daltrui played in 88, following in the footsteps of his father, Giuseppe, who played in four Olympics. Perika Bukic played water polo for Yugoslavia in 88. Luka Bukic represented Croatia in Rio and Tokyo. We got more Yugoslavia. Goran Maksimovic won air rifle gold for Yugoslavia. In 88, his daughter Ivana shot for Serbia in London oh, and okay. Rio. Makes wow. sense. I got I got more. I got more. This is this is insane this is how incredible. many legacies there are. I know. Also how many names I have to say. <laughs> Vacheslav Saitsev played volleyball for the Soviet Union in 1988. His son Ivan represented Italy in 2012, huh. 2016, and 2020. Yeah. I want to know what happened there. American diver Kelly McCormick won bronze in the three-meter springboard, but that did not match her mother's four diving goals in Helsinki and Melbourne. That's Pat McCormick. And the final one is one that people will be familiar with. Valeri Lukin won multiple medals in men's gymnastics in 1988. You may have heard of his daughter, Nastia. Wow. Pretty incredible. That is a huge list. I'm also curious to see if this Olympics varies from other Olympics. With I mean, obviously, earlier, you're going to have more kids. But, like, are we getting into three and four generations of Olympic families? The answer is this is not that different from a lot of other Olympics. Olympic families are a tradition. I'm sure I missed some. And, like I said, I didn't even get into siblings and spouses. But... This is a list that for certain countries and certain sports will be true no matter what Olympics we are covering historically. Amazing. Welcome to Shukflastan. It is the time of the show where we check in with our team Keep the Flame Alive. These are guests and listeners of the show who make up our citizens of Shuklistan. We've got some results. 
Nordic combined athlete Annika Malasinski got a world championships personal best with a 22nd place finish. Nice job, Annika. I'm excited for her. She's, she seemed to have a pretty good season. At the ISSF World Cup, which is their world championships, Tim Sherry finished 41st in men's 10-meter air rifle, 29th in mixed team 10-meter air rifle, and 26th in three-position 50-meter air rifle. And Ginny Thrasher finished 38th in women's three-position 50-meter air rifle. Tough champs for all of them, but it just goes to show that some days you have a really tough day, and we're sorry that this happened to be your tough day, but... Hopefully there are more better days in the future. In some other news, Aaron Jackson placed third overall for the World Cup season in the 500 meters. But more importantly, she will have her own bobblehead. And thank you, listener David, for letting us know about it. This we will put a link to that in the show notes. Yes, available for pre-order now. Get your very own. This is exciting to see. Para thrower Ness Murby is going to have his own show called Ness Murby Transcending. It's a documentary series that talks about his life and follows him as he trains and vies to be the world's first openly trans man to compete at a Paralympic Games. This debuts on March 8 on AMI-TV at 8 p.m. It's also going to be on demand at AMI.ca and the AMI-TV app. So it'll be a six-week run. And hopefully we're going to have uh, Ness on to talk about it soon. And curler John Schuster is competing in the Mixed Doubles National Tournament with Aileen Geving. And then so many listeners have gotten into the Paris 2024 ticket lottery. That would be listeners Patrick, Anthony, Dan, David, Brian, Ross, Don, Nicholas, superfan Sarah, contributor Ben, and me. I got into the lottery too. And you. And you. And you, you know, did you, you know who didn't get in the lottery? you me but don't but feel bad okay. because i, I have, don't i i ended up buying nothing in the ticket lottery because there's not it, by the time it's getting to us because i wonder if this is what is happening is that everybody's getting chosen for the lottery now and then they get there and they find out this is not what i wanted to get and they leave so when i looked i hoped for some fencing and some modern pentathlon and maybe some athletics and there was no fencing. There was no modern pentathlon. And the athletic session I wanted was there, but the tickets were like 690 euros each. They were really, really expensive. And I said, no. And then I looked around to see what else they had. I, I'm, I'm not really interested to see every sport if the price is really high. So I looked at weightlifting and I looked at wrestling and when I put those two together and then I was like, well, rugby, I would go see rugby. But in thinking of bringing the rugby's at the beginning of the games, the weightlifting and wrestling are at the end of the game. So that's kind of a little disparity there. When you put them all together for two tickets for each event, it was 850 euros. And I kind of went not wanting to pay that much for these events at this time. So fair enough. And we're going to have Ken Hanscom, our ticketing expert, back on the show probably about one year out, and he will tell us what we need to do at that point. Because the ticketing process for any Olympics is a long, long process with multiple rounds. Exactly. And he has said many a time, don't worry, there will be more tickets. And he has shown up at games with almost no tickets and gotten into some fabulous, fabulous events. So... 
they do have that resale platform. I think that will make it easier for people to resell their tickets and be able to see stuff you you want to see. So we're excited because so many of you do have tickets so far. And that means that we will be able to maybe, I don't know, it would be nice to have an event together and run into each other, but at least be able to put together a little chat group so that we know what you're up to, what you are experiencing, and be able to share that with everybody here. And find out how the bathrooms are at the different venues. Speaking of interesting bathroom activity... Oh, yes. A little Camila Valieva update. The Court of Arbitration for Sport has taken this appeal from WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency. So now we are in a case. The skating union has also appealed the Rusada's initial decision to not do a suspension for, for Valieva. Interestingly, Rusada has also appealed its own decision. And apparently this is not unprecedented, but they have decided that the board that made the decision did not do the right one. So they are appealing as well. So now this goes to the docket and we will see what what Cass has to say about it. Do you have thoughts? No. I'm going to okay. keep my mouth shut for once <laughs> and I'm going to let I'm going to wait. Well, you know, I I really want to see how this plays out because WADA has a protected class policy. They had this idea that if you are under a certain age, we're going to treat you differently. But I don't think they had ever had a case of somebody being underage and testing positive. So they really didn't seem to be prepared for that. And what did that mean? And how was that going to play out? And now they got handed this that said, guess what? If you've got 12, 13, 14-year-olds in the Olympics... Eventually, somebody's going to be guilty of doping. Mm-hmm. Okay, now somebody's guilty of doping. What do you do? Oh, that was me will... keeping my mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> and we love it. All right. Well, we shall see. We will keep you up to date on what we find out with the case. But this is on the next steps. We would like to thank all of our Shoklastanis who support the show, whether you tell a friend and help us grow the audience and help help us find more Shuklistanis, or whether you support us financially. We appreciate that. If you would like to help support the show in one way or another, go to flamealivepod.com slash support to learn more. And that is going to do it for this week. Let us know what you think about running a 1500 meter. I will never do that. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Our social handle is at Flame Alive Pod. Be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. And don't forget about our weekly newsletter filled with other fun stories about this week's episodes. You can sign up for that at flamealivepod.com. Next week is Book Club, which means Book Club Claire will be back to discuss our first selection of 2023. That's Inaugural Ballers, the true story of the first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team by repeat book club author Andrew Marinus. It is always fun when Claire is on, so you don't want to miss it. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. <laughs>